of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is July the 26th, 2019, and this is episode uh, 2,479 of the Survival Podcast. And we are going to have, of course, on a Friday, 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 an expert council Q&A show. Haven't done it for a while. How about it? It's Friday, Friday, Friday. Yep. Monster show of the week, expert council Q&A. Got a great lineup for you guys. Here's what we have today. Uh, we have a, a discussion about something called the LEAP program from former police officer Steve Wise. Concept or The use of cultured buttermilk in your diet from Gary Collins from The Simple Life. Using remote learning programs as a homeschool family with Mike and Sue LaPreeze. Vehicle pre-check for high-mileage vehicles on a road trip with Derek Bonpietro. Choosing a red dot site for an AR platform with J.R. Haley. Several common investing questions, and of course, the answers to go with them from John Pugliano. And the real reason that Congress wants the minimum wage to be raised and apply to jobs where you earn money being a tipped employee. From me, Jack, just something that came up on Facebook today. Uh, and then I got a question, poultry for eggs, pasture improvement, and annual meat production. Also, I'm going to take that one and uh, run uh, Anchorman on the show like I usually do. We'll get to all of that more in just a moment. Before we do, let's take a look at this week in history. You know, I used to do a daily history segment, and I thought maybe it got to be a bit much, but I decided, you know, once a week, let's look at what happened in history. This happened, uh, uh, I think it's this, today is actually the annual anniversary of it, like it did happen actually this day, but I'm, I'm just pulling something from the week in general. In 1953, this week in history, the Korean War came to an end with an armistice. Now, there's a lot of people who say when you say that, well, technically, Jack, you're wrong. These are the people that raise their hands at sci-fi conventions and ask a, an actor to explain a discrepancy in two different episodes from 20 years ago. Uh, they'll say, technically, it's not over yet. The Korean War has not officially ended. There's you know, been no official ending of the war. That's true, but the war ended. Do you know how we know the war ended? People stopped killing each other. So you have a war when people are killing each other, when bombs are going off. One of the things I think that most people in this country are shocked to learn is true. And if you don't believe this when you hear it, I wouldn't be surprised because we don't generally teach this in school in history class. But if you go look this up, you'll find out this claim is absolutely 100% verifiable and true. The United States, during the Korean War, and it was a war, not a conflict, like some people want to make it out to be, the Korean War, the United States killed about 25% of the population of North Korea. 25%. And what we need to understand is that there was a war that should have never been fought in the first place. Well, the North Koreans invaded... Blah. Okay, do you know how that happened? This is the untold story of the Korean War. So, throughout the war, the Russians, of course, were our allies... And, and we, FDR specifically, and then later Truman, had begged the Soviets to enter into the uh, conflict in the Pacific, to open up another front in the war. The United States then fought that war on their own with the help of our European allies. 
and took Japan to the brink of complete oblivion, where the war would have ended soon anyway, but to make sure that it really ended, we dropped something on them. You guys remember what it was called. It was called an atomic bomb. And then we had a couple of days before we dropped another one. It was in that interim that the Soviets opened a front in that theater, which wasn't much. And in return for that, they wanted their piece of the pie there, just like they got in Europe, i.e. specifically North Vietnam and North Korea. What we should have simply said is, go screw. Take your little shit and go screw. That's all we had to do is say, go screw. You don't get anything over here. We'll work out Europe. Go screw. You're in no position right now to demand anything in this. You have your, all of your assets are screwed. And you're, you're doing everything you can in Europe. Like, the only way this works is if we just say yes and lay down and give it to you. But that's exactly what we did. They came in and established communist beachheads in both North Korea and North Vietnam, both of which turned into a complete effing mess. But if you want to understand why even if they got involved, it would have been better for us to have just walked away, all you have to do is look at what happened in Vietnam. The war in Vietnam, as far as the U.S. involvement, started to ebb off around 1972 and was done by 1975. By the mid-'80s, the Vietnamese were reaching out to the United States and asking for our help. And today, and 20 years ago even, American tourists go on vacation and flip in Vietnam. Look at, North, look at Korea. Look at Korea. And what empowers the dictatorship of the North is the fear of the South. And you could say, well, you know, they should... We killed 25% of their total population. What if the United States had been cut in two after World War II? What if we had lost? And Germany and Italy split us. And the South was, was controlled by Italy and the North was controlled by Germany. And let's say that the North and the South got in a fight, and Italy, I know this is backwards because it would have went the other way, but let's just say, Italy killed 25% of the people in the northern United States, and then a line was drawn, Mason-Dixon or whatever. How willing would you be if you lived in Pennsylvania to trust the Italian-backed southern United States? If 75% of your family was killed in a war, where, where both sides were controlling your country that they cut in half. And how subjective could you be at that point, especially multiple generations down the road, being controlled by a dictator? This is why we have got to always see war is the last, absolute last choice. Because in almost every instance, where war is entered into when unnecessary, the situation gets worse. There are times when there is no choice. But in general, most of the wars that have been fought didn't need to be fought, and what came from them was not good. Just because you're on the side that wins and it generally works out okay for you, doesn't mean that the results were good. Okay, guys, with that, let's go ahead and get into hearing from the expert counsel today. Officer Steve Wise... I uh, was asked, I got to tell you guys this, first of all. So we've been doing these Monday, MeWe Mondays, where you come hang, hang out on MeWe, and I've been trying to do these MeWe Monday chats. So we have a, um, 
a, a full like a, a page, I guess there, a group is what they call it, a group on MeWe called the Survival Podcast Hangout. Anybody can join. One of the moderators will approve you very, very quickly as long as you answer the questions uh, that screen to make sure you're not a bot or something like that. And then on Mondays from 10 to 10.30, and it's usually 10 to 11, and sometimes it's earlier than 10 that I, I start it, uh, we have a chat where I am there and other people from TSP are there. We do the little chat room. And what I did this week is I said, hey, let's bang out questions for the expert council. Got a little out of hand. I had to put some structure into it, and I know how to do it better next time. But a lot of the questions you get today actually came in this week from MeWe. And it was really a lot of fun, and it, it allowed people to discuss things back and forth and come to a consensus on, like, this is what we really want to know. So, hey, if you're not a MeWe yet, consider joining us on MeWe. Look me up. Friend me up. I accept all my friend requests at least once a day. And uh, join the forum. Again, the Survival Podcast Hangout. Just search for it on MeWe, which is at MeWe.com, M-E-W-E.com. All right, so we had a question for Officer Steve Wise on something called the LEAP program. Now, I had never heard of the LEAP program, but... I sent it over to Steve, and he was good enough to answer it for us. So here we go. Steve, tell us about this thing called LEAP. Hey, Jack and TSP listeners. This is Steve Wise answering your law enforcement-related questions. Remember, I'm a retired law enforcement officer and not an attorney, so make sure you check your local laws and uh, regulations. And and uh, when in doubt, consult a real attorney. All right. Jack uh, sent me a short note from... Pa Prepper via MeWe Chat. Um, and the question is, can you tell us a bit about your thoughts on LEAP? That's Lima Echo Alpha Papa. And uh, Jack uh, will have a link to that in the show notes, I'm sure. Uh, so honestly, before I got this question, I had never heard of the organization. Um, so I went ahead and reviewed their website and They've got a very decent, good video on there where they interview one of the founders and he talks very and, and uh, has a lot of knowledge of what's going on. And, uh, basically uh, what this, uh, this program is before we get real deep in it is it's, it's about the law enforcement against prohibition. And their basic point is that law enforcement should not be in the business of enforcing laws related to morality and prohibition of things. So this, uh, you know, prohibition doesn't prevent anything illegal from happening is their kind of their point. And people will find a way to get drugs and alcohol and stuff like that, even if they're in jail. So you can't get much more restrictive than in prison, and they're still getting drugs in there. So what's the point of having a prohibition? They bring up a whole bunch of uh, facts and about how during our regular uh, our prohibition of alcohol, how the crime rate soared and how it all went back to normal as soon as they uh, removed prohibition. So let me just honestly say, 30 years ago, my answer would have been much different on this topic than it is today. I was younger. I was ready to chase the drug dealers and their customers and out of the neighborhoods that I worked. I watched drugs destroy people and destroy neighborhoods. Um, the way we would quote unquote win in a neighborhood was by running the people selling the drugs out of the neighborhood. Basically, we didn't stop crime. We just relocated it. So more recently, I saw an, an interview with, uh, a person I used to work with on the police department, 
kind of the irony is he was uh, head of the narcotics division. Uh, and uh, But he was dealing with a small child who had uncontrolled seizures. And eventually they found that a certain uh, CBD oil treatment worked, but it's illegal in our state. So his wife and child had to move to where it was legal to get the medicine they needed. That certainly, you know, changes my perspective on a few things. Now, many of our current medicines, especially painkillers and stuff, are derived from drugs that are considered illegal today. Heroin, cocaine, you know, things like that, fentanyl. Uh, they can be used for good, but they can also be abused. So I do believe in, that our artificial restrictions on certain drugs have removed uh, them from medical purpose uh, consideration. The whole prohibition of the use of marijuana for medical research and, and medicine needs and, and, uh, end up, uh, you know, it, this just totally messes up the ability for doctors to provide reasonable treatment to their patients. So I certainly think that there is room for medical uses and so it needs to be studied and uh, just like we've done with the other drugs. And I agree with the point made by the the officers in LEAP uh, that uh, their organization is asking officers that are much better dealing with things that are um, uh, criminal in nature, you know, the theft and the burglaries and things like that, homicides, they're much better dealing with those things than they are dealing with things that are probably better left up to healthcare professionals and mental health people and a community and a family and a church. These are not places, things that, that law enforcement are really ideally suited for. And, but this is where the huge challenge is here. We have broken down our communities. We've broken down our families. We've broken down the church. We've messed around with the health care system. We have forced our way slowly into a corner where there isn't anyone else willing to stand up to take charge. And the politicians have dumped it on law enforcement. So, you know, back in... About somewhere around 1967 or so is when California uh, wrote the first laws of making forced mental health treatment uh, where you can uh, forcibly have somebody detained against their will uh, for mental health evaluations. Uh, they started writing laws that you couldn't do that. And then you go a little bit further and then all of a sudden we're, we're shutting down all these mental health facilities and people can't be forcibly held in them anymore. So they're free to walk in and out with, with or without treatment. And, and so we've, we've taken these tools away from the public. Now, yes, they were abused. There are no shortage of stories. I mean, one flew out of the cuckoo's nest is kind of a good example of that. Uh, if you go back and watch the movie there. So, so yes, there is a problem there, but we've taken that out of the, the uh, quiver, basically. That arrow is no longer there. So where else are you going to put it? So let's take an example here. A person who does get addicted to drugs, and let's say they're arrested for burglary. Um, they did that to support their habit, so now you know there isn't going to be any drug rehabilitation in jail. Matter of fact, they might even get the same drugs that they were wanting uh, while they were in jail, so they're going to come out still addicted. They serve their sentence and they come out and there's no family to support them. 
There's no community to support them. There's no nothing for them to support. So, yeah, you know, they could check themselves into a mental hospital if they thought they needed some drug treatment, but there's nothing requiring them to stay, so they could just walk out. So where does this person end up? They end up back in the streets selling, stealing, abusing drugs, whatever they're going to do. They're going to end up right back into it. So if we were to take the giant step towards ending a prohibition of, uh, of drug enforcement, ending the war on drugs, I would really have to ask a very important question to everybody to seriously consider. Who is going to step up next? Are we going to offer drug rehabilitation? Are we going to force drug rehabilitation on people that need it? Are we going to be willing to force that and and get these people the help that they need? Are we going to build up the community? We're going to build the family back up. We can hold people responsible in this way. Are you know? So if they're not, who's going to stand up? We remove this prohibition, and you know, sure. Law enforcement really isn't ideally suited for this. Our jails are not ideally suited for the treatment of these individuals. But who's going to step up? Are you going to raise your hand? Are you going to do it? So I know LEAP, you know, we already kind of mentioned it, but LEAP points back to the end of prohibition of alcohol. We survived when it ended, you know, in the 1930s. It wasn't a great time, but, you know, hey, what? Guess what? There was family back in the 1930s. There was church in the 1930s. We had community. We knew our neighbors. We didn't throw people away as easily then as we do now. Sure, it wasn't perfect, but it was a better time then than we are today. Today, we you know block streets with people and force people to drive directions they don't want to go. We, we just have a protest over anything. So forced mental health facilities, we ran them out of business. We don't have them. We don't have those laws on the books anymore because they were being abused. Certainly not a good thing. Um, so I ask again, if we remove the prohibition on drugs, we take law enforcement out of the way, you going to stand up? Are you ready? Anyway, I hope that provokes some thoughts. I, I could have gone a lot da- deeper down the rabbit hole. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that are destroying our country today and, and the criminal justice system is just one of those tools in the system that is left there. And, um, you know, but I think we might have gotten a few people thinking. And, and of course, I'm always interested in hearing what Jack has to say because he always takes this stuff in a different direction than I'm even thinking. So, hey, once again, thank you, everybody, for listening, and I appreciate it. Have a good night. So here's where you see even a person's very liberty-oriented when they've been part of the system for long enough, they become institutionalized. That's that's where Steve's coming from here. He wants to say we should just make this illegal or that we should just end this, but since he can't see a solution that meets with the nirvana fallacy, which is, well, if there's anything wrong with it, it's not a solution. Where there's, there's just billions of things wrong with the current so-called solution. And what this makes me think of is Spirko's Law of Life number five, which reads simply, all power granted to the state will be, a, will be abused and used incompetently, so think carefully before granting them any such power. 
So what that means is when we give the state the power to prohibit substances in the name of protecting citizens from their own choices, we are giving them a power over the right of individuals to choose what substances they do and do not put into their body, knowing full well that the state will both abuse that power and be incompetent in their execution of their directive. Period. All power granted to the state will be abused. Period. I defy anyone to show me any power that's been given to the state that's never been abused. Not once. Okay, so we know it will be abused. And I defy you to show me anything the state has been asked to do that they have not proven that they have put people in positions with extreme power over people's lives who were then incompetent in the directive they were given. So we know that it will be used incompetently. That doesn't mean it will always be abused, and it doesn't mean it will always be incompetent, but it means it will always have some part of it that is so. So, who's going to step up? Well, who steps up now? Who steps up now? Steve just laid it out pretty. Okay, guy gets gets arrested for burglary to support his drug habit. Do you think if he could buy the drugs cheap at um, the, the drugstore that he would need a burglary to pay for them? If he did, then you would say that anything that anybody steals anything for needs to be prohibited. Like, maybe a guy stole the car because he wanted a car. Who so should prohibit cars? Like, see, this doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any sense. So the burglary was the crime. The burglary had a victim. He went to jail for it. Okay, fine. Again, I would, I would much prefer a stateless society where we have private market solutions to this problem. So the person who was burglarized actually gets restitution. That, uh, but, but I'll settle for, hey, we don't do things in our society from the state level unless there's a victim. Somebody broke into my house, stole my shit. Okay, there's a victim. This guy has to pay for his actual crime. The fact that he did it for drugs is irrelevant to me. Did he do it for drugs? Did he do it because he just li didn't like me and he thought I had too much? Did he do it because his kid was hungry? Well, you know, if his kid's hungry, I don't care. He still stole from me. He still broke into my property. He still risked the safety of my household. He disrupted my life because he wanted what I had. doesn't matter why. So we have to take the crime problem, and we have the actual crime where people have victims. That's here. And then the drug problem over here. And we have to start asking ourselves, if there wasn't a whole shitload of money on the street selling drugs... How much crime would there be around drugs? If you could get heroin or whatever you wanted cheap in known doses that was safe, and when I say safe, I don't mean that like you can't kill yourself with it, because you can kill yourself with a bottle of vodka. I mean that you know that this thing that's labeled heroin doesn't have fentanyl in it. All right? If you could get that for pennies on the dollar at the grocery store, or at least at little shops. How many pimps would be able to entice women to being prostitutes for 10 years of their life until they wear them out and discard them like garbage, if that was the case? And the answer is very few. Because you don't see pimps controlling women with alcohol. It's always drugs. Because they're illegal, and therefore you're dirty for using the illegal drugs, and you can't get help for the illegal drugs. People, you'll go to prison for having the illegal drugs. Right? And all the money is there because they're illegal. So, you know, I, I, the thing is I can hear Steve's conflict. 
And the answer is, the laws against drugs do not prevent people from having their lives destroyed by drugs now. And if anything, we are using public resources to incarcerate those people instead of treat those people. And if nothing else, even in a statist world, those resources could then be applied to people who need recovery assistance versus housing them in a criminal facility for doing something that has no victim. And 90%, I have, I have no doubt that 90% of the crime around drugs that, is, that actually is victim-based crime would go away because you wouldn't have this monetary incentive. And, you know, he opened up with the, the, the point that so many people have made, I've made a million times, you can't keep drugs out of prison. If you can't keep drugs out of prison, you can't keep them out of the hands of free people anyway. All you can do is take peaceable people and turn them into criminals. And in all of this arguing, we just ignore the millions of people who use various different substances that don't destroy their lives, don't kill themselves, and don't harm anybody. The argument made, well, this kills people. Cars kill people. What if they ran a commercial every day? The following people died today in automobiles. Stop the madness and the car. Do you know how many how many names would scroll up that screen after they said that and played some some really tear jerking music? 102 a day. 102 a day. With soft music. In the arms of an angel. Oh, we have to get rid of the car. Do you see how ridiculous it is when you point it that way? And, and deaths from drugs are serious and, and a real problem today. But I'll, I'll tell you what, there's a ton of people out there that want treatment right now that can't get it. He talked about checking themselves in for mental health. Well, what they're going to do is say, you don't have a mental illness, you have a drug addiction. Once They, they might take them in for a day or two, and that's what they'll make a determination. Okay, you have a, you have a drug problem. This is not what we do here. Go try to get a bed. Go try to get a bed in a treatment facility that gets people off heroin. Go try to do it. And am I saying that all of a sudden there will be a million empty beds available to people if we make it legal? No. I'm saying the solution we have right now doesn't work. It doesn't work at all, and it's immoral. So what do I think a leap? You know what I think a leap. I think that if you're a law enforcement officer, you need to get your ass over there, learn about it, and become part of the solution instead of perpetrating the problem. And if somebody burglarizes somebody, shoots somebody, stabs somebody, beats somebody up, etc., 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 because drugs, arrest them for that when they actually have a victim. Let's take another one. Hello, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the thesimplelifenow.com. And make sure to stay up to date with me by signing up for my newsletter, The Simple Life now.com forward slash newsletter get 10 percent off your first order and a bunch of free goodies um today what is my opinion of cultured buttermilk well actually buttermilk is cultured so you don't even have to say that that's today's version buttermilk comes from actually the liquid remains from making butter that's where buttermilk the term came from but today what it means is adding cultures to normal milk so what is my opinion? Um, you guys know me. I'm a primal guy. If you can handle dairy, dairy's a great food. I mean, it's got complete nutrition. Uh, it's in that quality of eggs. But the problem with dairy products is people tend to overdo them uh, because they are calorie dense and also have a high amount of fat. So you have to be careful with it, just like anything else. 
but also, you know, you know my opinion about modern dairy to the dairy that we're getting, you know, in the grocery store. That's most of it's just garbage. You know, you want to get, you know, organic, grass fed, raw, you know, got to be careful with raw products. We don't have our immune system that, you know, we once had back in the day when we used to consume a lot of raw dairy products, especially raw milk. So always be careful with that. So my attitude is, yeah, it has probiotics. It's, uh, they're natural. They're adding cultures to it, to normal milk, to make buttermilk. So yeah. Uh, and also a big thing to me is if you can't tolerate dairy, which a lot of people can't, don't force it. I have, my mom does that. She has been, had digestive issues a large part of her life because she just refuses to cut dairy out and she is lactose intolerant, has issues with dairy, but she fights it tooth and nail. I think I finally talked her into this year of stop being using dairy. Um, so yeah, I hope that helps guys and, uh, uh, make sure to check out my new book called the simple life guide to decluttering your life and keep sending those questions. So, I do want to point out that not all buttermilk is cultured. Some of it is simply made with something like vinegar or lemon juice. That's another way we can make a buttermilk approximation, which is what cultured buttermilk is. But Gary's right. The cultured buttermilks out there that have live cultures in them are everything he said. I would like to propose something to people, though, when it comes to the need or use of buttermilk, period. Make your own. And I know you maybe saw Alton Brown show that you can dump vinegar or vanilla lemon juice in there. That's not what I mean. One of the healthiest fats in the world is dairy fat. There are people that have a hard time with milk, but not milk fat. Got me? Okay. And if you can get raw milk, even better to do this with, but at least organic milk to do this. Well, not milk, cream. You get heavy cream and make butter out of it. And you'll end up with a big old lump of the best butter you can get your hands on. And as Gary said, the remains will be buttermilk. We do this all the time. It's great. I make my grandson shake a jar. I know I could go to Lemons and get a, a, a churn. I get a big old friggin' mason jar. I dump a, uh, a quart of um, heavy cream, organic heavy cream in there, put the lid on it, hand it to him, make him shake it. He gets to make butter. I get butter and buttermilk. And so if you, you know, then you've got real buttermilk, especially for things like cooking with buttermilk. Just a, just a thought. All right, next up, question from Mike and Sue LaPreeze on homeschooling and specifically doing it with remote programs, remote learning programs. Here we go. This is Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you love to live for the expert console. Hey, Jack. Hey, TSB community. Today's question comes from Nathan T. Not sure where Nathan is from, but his question is this. As the homeschooling community grows, new remote enrollment options have started to arrive for K-12 students. Oak Meadow is something my family is seriously considering. It looks expensive, but may provide the structure and confidence a new homeschooling family needs to get going. Thoughts on homeschooling while remotely enrolled in Oak Meadow or others? So, yes, it is extremely expensive. Yes. So for kindergarten, you're looking at $2,700 per year for one child. And our kindergarten would be $0. We go to the library. We use stuff from the grocery store to make crafts. 
Or yeah, you, significant difference in price. Yes. So uh, and so, Oak Meadows is curriculum driven, uh, and it spends a lot of money. Which, if you're in Pennsylvania, the answer might be yes. So yeah, Pennsylvania is really restrictive, and you're going to want a better package yeah. curriculum. And they they and they uh, advertise themselves as an accredited school. Yeah. Okay, so, but that's $2,700 per year for children, and that's through K through 8. So it adds up really quickly. Well, it goes up incrementally each year. Yeah, and then when you get to high school, it's $1,800 per subject per child per year. So if that's five subjects, that's $9,000 for one child. Yeah. So for four years of high school, that's $36,000 for high school. Yeah, so you can get a pretty good tutor in a subject your kid's struggling with for that price. Yes. For Part of that price. So you want to begin with the end in mind. And you might think, well, $2,700 a year I can do, but in 12 years, do you want to do $9,000 a year? That price will go up, no doubt about it. So this is good for people with money and people whose kids are really high achievers where that kind of kid who wants to sit and do that seat work and check those boxes. If your kid is not like that, you are probably going to struggle with, I spent all this money and you're not getting your work done, which yes. is not fun. Right. And the customer reviews say, my son uses this K-12 through and got into an Ivy League school. However, unschoolers with little money have done the same. It's not about curriculum, but IQ, natural gifting, and initiative. So um, Kathy Duffy is a homeschool reviewer, been around for 30-plus years. She reviews curriculums and products that homeschoolers use, anything people ask her about. And she says this is an excellent program for this type of program. And that's what you have to remember, really. This is a type of program for people who have the money and kids who are really wanting to sit and do this structured kind of school. Yes. What we recommend is starting young. And learning with your children. You're Is learning- that when I'm young or when my kids are young? Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you're learning how to teach as they're growing, which is why we recommend curriculum that is designed for parents to teach multiple children, K through 12, so you're not constantly learning curriculum instead of enjoying learning. We do an annual retrospective, what works, what doesn't work, and we adjust, adjust inside that curriculum because our children are different. And right now we're dealing with, you know, a three, four, and five-year-old, which is different than dealing with, well, our 11- and 12-year-old. So, for example, the curriculum we have that we've been using for 16 or more years, there's a history, literature, geography, worldviews writing program I bought. It was $200 for one year, and you buy four of those years, and then you cycle through them. For each age level. It's for all age levels, all children, all grades. And it's paid for in four years. That's eight hundred. So that was 12 years ago that I finished paying for those. So I've gotten these 12 years for free. And then the next 15 years, because we have a three-year-old again, is also free. So I spent $800 on that. And it's forever. Then my math is $75 per year per grade level, which is $900 for those 12 years. And so for $1,700... I have all of that, and I've still spent less than Oak Meadows Kindergarten. Oh, and I have a spelling program that's $85 for... That's $85 one time 
Feet. Yes, it's for kindergartners through high school, even into college. It has college spelling. So it costs us $85, and we've used it for 16 years. years. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, this is extremely expensive. However, for some of you, you might want something online that's more structured. We wouldn't necessarily recommend Oak Meadow. Yeah, another one, and, you know, we don't – we're not sponsored by anybody, so. Uh, but another one would be the Ron Paul curriculum, right? It's two hundred fifty dollars a year per family, plus fifty dollars per course, with some courses being free. Like first grade kindergarten type stuff. There were a bunch of homeschool moms got together to help him develop a really simple program that allows you to do some basic phonics and math with your kids, and then it gives you these. And later today, go have this fun activity with your kids. It's pretty cute. Um, and well, uh, Tom Woods has done the history section for the high school history program. So, you know, Tom Woods is a Ph.D., and he developed a, a, a very good program for high school children. And, again, this is a really strenuous program, but you don't have to get your senior through four years of history. You might do two or three years of history, and you might do four years of science, or you might do two years of math. There's a lot of falsehood in what it takes to get into college and graduate from high school. And so you really need to look at that. Yes. The other thing with that curriculum is it's very freedom-centered and entrepreneurial and really liberty-minded. So it's the mindset that people who tend to listen to TSP would have. Yeah, so there's one course that you – it's $50, and your kid develops an entire website and publishes it. And it's 50 bucks, and you learn through – going through all those steps. It's pretty cool. Yes. So this has been Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com reminding you that when designing the life you'd love to live, you need to balance the structure of your curriculum with the opportunity for your children to express their creativity. Back to you, Jack. I'm just going to say I wouldn't do it. You can, you can afford a damn good private school that gives you exactly what you're looking for for your kids, at least for the high school years, for that kind of money. Um. Where I might use it, if I had a kid that was particularly gifted in a particular subject, maybe I would, you know, because you can do individual subjects that way, and they were trying to actually put together something to get into college into a specific area, maybe. But I do think what we, we have got to remember is that the majority of people in this country that are earning a decent income as entrepreneurs or employees either do not have degrees in the first place or have degrees in which they are not active. They have a degree in, you know, literary studies or they have a degree. There's people out there with engineering degrees that are running car dealerships. And there's nothing wrong with that. It just, their degree ain't why they're running a car dealership. Do you see what I'm saying? And so begin with the end in mind with something Mike and Sue said there. And I think that's where we have to be. We have to... As our kids grow, and I don't care where they're getting their education or how they're getting their education, what we hold them to needs to be based on what they really want in their life. Because I had one of the unschoolers on, I can't remember his name now, but a guy I had on was an unschooler and an author, and he said something very, very poignant. He said, people learn things when they need it, when they need to know. When you need to know something, you learn how to do it. Now, if we're talking about something like how to save your life because somebody's trying to kill you, you kind of need to do some you know, experimental uh, training in advance with that. But when it comes to most of the shit that they put kids through in school today, well, what if you ever need it? Well, then I'll learn how to do it then. I'll get on Google. I'll watch videos. I'll learn how to do it. 
And, and that's what we need to understand. And the majority of people that go to college and get a degree don't know 90% of the shit they supposedly learned. I promise you, you go find me anybody, been out of school for 10 years, and you get me three of their either midterm or final exams. I bet you they can't pass them. I bet you they can't. And if they can, they were the kind of person that would have been able to do it without the damn teacher in the first place. So we just need to pull back to that kind of, again, that what are we trying to accomplish, and let's build to that. And I think that what parents need is more confidence. It is not that hard to teach your child what they need to know to function in this world. They have convinced you that you need this structure. And, this, and what ends up happening, Mike, Mike and Sue have talked about this a lot, is we take the child out of the failed government education system, we bring them home to learn, and then we bring the failed formula with them. And maybe that's not the way to go. Sometimes maybe it is. My uh, nephew and his wife are homeschooling their daughters now, and they are using the state-approved thing where they're registered with the Texas state school system. They're doing the exact same schoolwork, but they're doing it from home. You know, if that's what they want to do, fine. If that works for them, fine. I've just told them, as this progresses, if it doesn't all work for them, be open to other options. And to be fair, they said they would be, so we shall see. All right, with that, let's take another one. This one is on a vehicle uh, pre-road trip checklist for a high-mileage vehicle with Derek Monpietro. Hey, TSP listeners, this is Derek from AffordableDCGenerators.com. Got one from Matt via the MeWe chat feature. For the vehicle guy, sorry, forgot his name. Vehicle checklist for a high-mileage vehicle, 150 to 200K. When planning a road trip, more than just the usual oil change, tires, etc., stuff that might be easily missed but more important for high mileage or tools slash parts to have on hand. Obviously, if like a wheel bearing goes out, nothing can be done on the road but any other stuff. Matt, let's get into this one because I like higher mileage vehicles. Every time you drive them, it's like putting money in the bank. When we're talking about what to have on hand with any kind of vehicle, especially with something with a few more miles on the odometer, uh, tools and equipment certainly come into play because obviously you're more at risk to having faults than something that's newer. So a jump pack, even the most basic small one, that's going to be uh, the little power brick, the lithium ones that you can now almost fit in your pocket, certainly would be a good addition, not only that, but then powering your possibly laptop, tablet, phone, etc. So you get some dual features onto that. But I bring my jump pack wherever I'm going to go. I also have a small tool set in every vehicle. And for small vehicles, I can rely on the jack points and the jack equipment that comes with the vehicle. But with a larger truck, I certainly step up my game with a floor jack or a, a bigger, beefier bottle jack than what the vehicle comes with. You never know what you're going to get into. And then also with tire repairs that can leave you stranded. I know Jack talks a lot, a lot about using like fix-a-flats to get you off the road and then possibly doing a tire repair with a plug. Uh, that way you can get to a safer spot on the road and then do the proper repair. So definitely carry some, some tire equipment, fix a flat, a plug kit, etc. These are all cheap money items that everybody should have regardless of the vehicle. Now, when it comes to having like spare parts for a car, uh, some vehicles are obviously going to have more failure-prone pieces than others. So, for example, certain cars may kill their mass airflow sensors, which is a, a sensor that's on the airbox, which measures the air coming into the engine, which can leave you stranded. 
Others might have maybe a crankshaft or a camshaft position sensor. Again, some of those will leave you completely stranded. And if you maybe carried one of these as a spare, it would be cheap money. Uh, and obviously knowing what tools you're going to need to replace it or if it's replaceable because, you know, something, sometimes those just can't be serviced while on the road. So knowing a little bit of your vehicle history or repetitive failures with other uh, owners can give you kind of like a, a spare parts list to kind of keep on hand if you can afford it obviously the parts such as like having a spare drive belt or some spare fuses things like that can certainly help you but also knowing where they are and how to change them or how to test them come into play so this is really where getting comfortable with your vehicle and doing some maybe weekly or monthly tests on it outside of just doing the regular routine oil changes and tire rotations Knowing how to check your drive belts or maybe pull the tension off the belt and check the idler pulleys and the alternator and the water pump and make sure none of those are going to start growling and showing wear and play because those are the kinds of things that can leave you stranded on a higher mileage vehicle. Preventative maintenance is key and checking your vehicle on a monthly basis and knowing what's starting to wear out or starting to loosen up, you can be more proactive than reactive and you're only going to really get that if you've got your hands dirty and checking the vehicle yourself out. You're not going to really get that kind of insight by taking your vehicle to a dealership or you know, the quick oil change place and things like that. You popping the hood and seeing things, seeing what the belts look like, the hoses look like, are you starting to get a leak on the radiator, things like that. You can keep an eye on it and you can know when things need to be replaced rather than, oh, look, I've got a massive coolant leak. Let's get it to somebody to get the radiator replaced. See where I'm going with this? Now, Matt, you also mentioned like if a wheel bearing goes out, you really can't do anything about that. Very rarely does something like that just fail for no reason. Okay, I see a lot of guys on the side of the road and one of the wheels is pointed in like the tie rod busted. Uh, so obviously that's going to leave you stranded. You see a lot of pickup trucks on the side of the road and, you, and the rear drive shaft is hanging down uh, and not connected to the rear axle. And that's because like the rear universal joint on the drive shaft let go. And I always kind of chuckle because I feel bad for these people that, you know, their day is being completely disrupted and they now have... Uh, you know, huge financial responsibility to fixing these things. But at the same time, how long has the front end in that vehicle been clunking bad to the point to where the tie rod lets go? Or how long has the drive shaft been squeaking or vibrating to the point like a paint mixer before you decided, hey, I should take this in and have it looked at? Okay, I know how these things go. They don't just randomly happen for no reason. So part of your kind of due diligence each month or each oil change would be jacking it up and making sure things are tight under the vehicle. If you've got uh, half shafts on a front-wheel drive or a four-wheel drive vehicle, making sure the boots aren't ripped and spitting grease everywhere, checking the drive shafts to make sure they're tight. And maybe you don't need to be an expert on how to repair these uh, components, but if you know that they're starting to fail or, like, the boots are starting to crack or you got a little bit of play, you can be, again, proactive in getting the vehicle in for repairs so that way you're not doing it reactively, getting a tow truck, and then bringing it to a shop that's going to gouge you because they know you're on the hook, literally. Also, with higher mileage, I want to make sure that you're following the recommended maintenance that you're going to find in the owner's manual. So, for example, if your vehicle has, like, a timing belt or the spark plugs are being changed at the correct intervals, things like that. If you haven't had them done personally or done them yourself at a certain time, bite the bullet, have it done, along with changing out all of the fluids, things like that. This is also going to keep preventative things from happening, like the timing belt snapping or 
the engine developing a misfire because of a, a faulty spark plug because the thing went, you know, 150,000 miles and never was changed. So, again, preventative maintenance, being proactive instead of reactive, and knowing your vehicle kind of top to bottom personally will help you with a higher mileage vehicle and keeping it going down the road. Uh, again, I will advocate over anybody that use cars that are well-kept, will put money in your pocket instead of take money out like a new card will. Check out AffordableDCGenerators.com. I'm working on the YouTube channel. It's been a little slow going this summer, trying to enjoy some of that nice weather while it lasts up in New England. Some of the stuff I've got going on, working on a multi-stage regulator for the DC generators. Also working on uh, kind of like a do-it-yourself power box, which is going to have a battery and some inverter and USB charging capability and kind of like the go-to all-in-one box with the uh, functionality you'd get out of like a, a Goal Zero Yeti, but way under that price point and obviously being able to keep it charged with household AC with a battery charger or some solar or, of course, the affordable DC generator. So always working on the project, so stay tuned on that YouTube channel. Take care, guys, and happy Friday. Good stuff as always from Derek, and I'm just going to say that make sure whatever you um, take with you in case you have problems on the road, and we'll talk about one of those things for item of the day today, honestly, um, make sure you know how to use it. Because <laughs> even though in the last segment on education I said people learn how to do things when they need to, there are some things that maybe you need to have some pre preparation in advance for, uh, like being stranded on the side of the road and You're sitting there with something like a tire plug kit. You need to know how it works. Just going to say that. Uh, next up, uh, we may be making this guy a permanent member of the council. He's a guy I really like, good friend of mine. Uh, been part of the TSP community going back quite a few years now. His name's uh, J.R. Haley. And uh, J.R. is a firearms enthusiast. And I like where he's coming from with it because he is not the tactical slicked up guy that's trying to run an armory and run a you know, defensive training school. He's just a big time firearms enthusiast, retired master sergeant out of the air force, um, lifelong interested in guns and can really talk about tactical arms and sporting arms equally well. And, uh, just does a good job and nothing to sell or anything either. Uh, at least not yet, and uh, so I think I'd like to bring him on as a permanent member of the council. Uh, I have a couple questions into him right now. I need some more. Uh, if I can get you know enough questions to make it viable, I really would like, would think guns. You know, I know I like to talk about them too, but uh, this was the one I, I kicked over to him. It was on selecting a red dot site for an AR platform. Jr., uh, what do you what do you say on that? Hey, TSP. JR here to answer an expert council question from Tom in Northern California. Tom says that he is looking for a budget-friendly red dot for his AR rifle. Uses will be target practice, hunting out to 150 yards, and home defense. He's narrowed it down to two models and would like the pros and cons of each. He's looking at the Aimpoint Pro, which stands for Patrol Rifle Optic, and the Trigicon MRO, which is Miniature Rifle Optic. Well, this is a great question, Tom, and you're looking at two very comparable optics from the two leading manufacturers in this business. So let's break those down. Both of these run very comparable MSRPs and are running around $440 with included mount on most websites. The Aimpoint boasts three years of constant on with one battery, and the Trigicon boasts five years of constant on. 
The Aimpoint weighs in at 7.8 ounces and the Trigicon weighs in at 4.1 ounces. Both come with two MOA dots or minute of angle, which is the proper size for the applications that you mentioned. Both optics have brightness controls that are ambidextrously accessible. The Aimpoint does have two more dial settings of brightness than the Trigicon, and that can help on some really bright days. Tom, you mentioned in your email about reading some reviews concerning the bluish tint on the Trigicon MRO, and if that should be a concern. The only hands-on experience I have with the MRO is on an outdoor range in daylight conditions, and it really wasn't a distraction for me on that day. It was noticeable, but in the end, it really didn't pull me away from any of the targets that we were shooting. In fact, the biggest thing I noticed about the Trigicon that day was that my field of view was noticeably bigger. Now, it's not a magnified optic, so field of view is not as critical of a consideration as it is on a telescopic optic. When I'm using a red dot on the rifle, I keep both eyes open so the field of view isn't as big a deal, but I will say it was noticeable if you closed your offhand eye and just used your primary eye to sight through it. For my fighting rifle for the house, I run an Aimpoint Micro and have a lot of hours behind Aimpoint and a lot of trust in their product. And the industry really bears that out as well. Trigicon is neck and neck with Aimpoint in all those same areas. Build quality and trust are an even in this comparison. Tom, you're on a good path, man. But I think it really comes down to personal preference at this point on these two optics. Another bonus and the thing I like about the Trigicon MRO over the Aimpoint Pro is the lighter weight and smaller footprint on your rifle. If I can get equal durability for less weight, all things being even, 99 times out of 100, I'm going to go for the lighter weight option. And that's why I'd lean toward the Trigicon MRO in this comparison. Now, I'll share another option for you to consider because the first thing you mentioned in your email was budget. For me, a budget optic usually stays under $200 and maybe closer to $150. I do have a good player for you in the price range. Holosun is a brand that is really starting to make a name for itself in the dependable budget optics. They're actually trying to compete even at this much lower price point with the aim points and the Trigicons of the world. That's to be determined, but many of their rifle optics can be found for under $200, and they have a footprint of the Aimpoint Micro. I have a Holosun 403 Bravo on one of my 22 rifles. They have a whole lot of different options that are out there from shake-awake technology, solar-powered, selectable reticles that are on the actual site. So far, I've been really happy with the one that I have on that 22 rifle, and for any of my budget selections in the future, I'll be sticking with Holosun. Thanks for the question, Tom, and best of luck. Uh, I'm going to just kind of sum up and agree. I think either are a good choice. I'd go with the lighter optic. Price is comparable. Dependability is comparable. Warranty is comparable. Durability is comparable. Uh, the lighter optic has a longer battery life, and it's lighter. And the reason I'm always big on anything that goes on to a, a rifle, a shot, I don't care what it is, being as light as possible, is that guns in general have been designed 
to be balanced the way that they're built, and whenever we add weight, we change that. Um, it's actually taken me quite a while to come around to optics on the AR platform at all. Being an old man who came up shooting M16A1s in the United States Army, um, who was skeptical that you could reliably hit, you know, basically a pie plate sized target, a human chest, at 300 yards through iron sights. And then learning that it actually is easy. If you do what you're taught and you have a modicum of skill, it's actually easy to do. Um, it's hard for me to see the need for that rifle to have optics until you start low light conditions and things like that. And just the flat out reality, people shoot better, especially at CQB ranges. So I've come around to it, but then I still want that rifle to be as, as stock as possible, if that makes sense from a balance and, and everything else on it. I don't, like, I don't like my rifles to look like Stormtrooper weapons from Star Wars. I like them to look like what they are. That's just my additional thoughts on that. Uh, next, I have uh, John Pugliano, who's taken a whole bunch of y'all's questions and mashed them all together with a bunch of really great answers. John, take it away. Hey TSP, today I'm going to bundle a bunch of questions together. Now a lot of these are basic investing questions and they all have a very similar theme. And with that, I want to start off with a question from Aaron and Jack and I receive a lot of questions that are very similar to Aaron's question. It's all about how do I cash out or how do I withdraw my money from my 401k in the event of a market meltdown or a, or a downturn in the economy? Well, when Aaron started doing some research with his own company and their policies on 401k withdrawals, he found out that you can't withdraw your money from an IRA, not easily anyways, and only if it involves certain hardship situations. I'll get into those in a minute, but the bottom line is that policy is not unique to Aaron's company. That's the way 401ks are set up. They're designed for you to put your money into them and to make it very difficult to get your money out. And with only a handful of exceptions, you actually can't withdraw your money from your 401k unless you quit that employer and go somewhere else. If you actually cash out or withdraw your money from an employer 401k, then that's going to result in penalties and tax consequences. And it also prohibits you from putting that money back into another retirement plan. So you don't ever really want to withdraw your money or cash out of a 401k until you're in retirement. What you do in the meantime, if you leave your employer, is you roll that 401k over into another tax advantage retirement account. That could be an IRA. That could be a 401k plan that's sponsored by your new employer. You want that money to stay under the auspices of a retirement account so that it can continue to grow and accumulate either tax-free or tax-deferred. Now, as far as to actually withdrawing or cashing out of a 401k, there are a few instances where you can do that without leaving your employer, and those are called safe harbor hardship rules. And essentially what this is, is giving you an opportunity to get at the 401k money basically for emergencies. Things like paying medical bills to prevent eviction or foreclosure from your primary residence, or damage repair on your primary residence, or even money to be taken out for a down payment on a home or for qualified education expenses. So there are some outlets available to you to take money out of your 401k plan if it's a hardship or if you fit into one of these other special categories, but talk to your HR people 
This is not something you do willy-nilly. You have to fill out the appropriate forms, and your need for the money has to meet one of those hardship requirements. Now, getting back to Aaron's really specific question, what he's worried about is, is how does he get his money out of the market in case of a recession or some kind of a downturn or a meltdown in the stock market? Well, Aaron, there's a big difference between taking your money out of your retirement plan or just moving it out of the market. You never want to take the money out of the retirement plan. You simply want to move it around or reallocate it from risky assets to those that are less risky. And in Aaron's case, I specifically did some email exchanges with him, and he has a typical 401k plan, which offers about half a dozen different types of funds and then a whole bunch of target retirement date funds. And in every 401k plan, you're going to find some type of cash equivalent fund, which in my opinion is the safest place you can be because it is about as risk-free as you're going to get. Now, different plans have different names for this cash equivalent fund, but I contacted Aaron and in his specific case, he has access to a stable value fund. Now, that's right within his 401k. So if Aaron is concerned that there's going to be a downturn in the stock market, he can go into his 401k plan and he can put in an order to sell the stock funds that he owns and have those proceeds reallocated into this stable value fund. Now, in his case, that particular fund, I think it was paying 2 2.5%. The principal's guaranteed, and it's that simple. You simply reallocate and rotate the money out of the funds that are invested in equities or even bond funds that can fluctuate in value and move it into the cash equivalent fund, whether you're in a 401k or Roth IRA or just a standard brokerage account or whether it's at your bank or whatever it is, you're going to have access to some type of cash equivalent fund. Maybe a money market fund, maybe like in Aaron's case, a stable value fund. It might be an ultra short term U.S. Treasury fund, but whatever it is, you're moving into that cash equivalent because when the market's unstable, cash is king. Now, are there other more sophisticated things that you can do? Absolutely. You can purchase protective puts. You can sell short. You can go into inverse ETFs. It may be appropriate to move into short-term or long-term U.S. Treasuries. Or in some cases, it may be wise to move into a gold or silver ETF. But all those things that I just mentioned, all of them other than cash, can fluctuate with market conditions and your principal is not guaranteed. So are there sophisticated things that you can do to protect or even profit from a downturn in the market? Absolutely, but in general, for most people, and particularly for people that are in restricted 401k plans, in my opinion, the absolute best thing that you can do if you're worried about a market downturn is to simply go into cash. That doesn't mean that you sell or you withdraw your money from the retirement account. You just reallocate it into whatever the cash equivalent fund is that's within your 401k. Now, speaking of 401ks, we received a question from Marcus where he has the opportunity within his 401k to move it into a self-directed brokerage account. More and more 401ks are allowing their employers to do that. It's very similar to managing your own IRA or Roth where you're not limited to a handful of mutual funds, but you can buy stocks or ETFs or a whole wide array of other investments. But remember, just because you have the ability to move into all these other investing opportunities, it doesn't mean that you should or that you have the knowledge or the ability to do it. And so before you start purchasing individual stocks or sector ETFs or other types of specialized investment products, 
Do your homework, educate yourself. And oftentimes the simplest strategy is the best strategy, and that's either simply dollar cost averaging into an S&P 500 type index fund, and then if you want to try and get a little sophisticated with it, you're worried about a market downturn or recession, that's when you rotate out of that fund and move into the cash equivalent. I'm running out of time here, but I also want to try and answer a couple questions quickly that came in from MeWe. BBQ Homesteader asked, What's a good resource for researching mutual funds? The industry standard for researching mutual funds is Morningstar, and you can access that through Morningstar.com. However, they will make you sign up and register for a free account, and there's you know premium services as well. But if you don't want to give them your email or you don't want to register, then there are also plenty of free screeners. If you just Google mutual fund screener, uh, and in particular, if you look at Yahoo Finance mutual fund screener, you'll see that you can get a listing and sort through and filter the whole mutual fund index based on Morningstar ratings, and they do it on a five-star rating. And when you get into these screeners, you can simply say, you know, I want to see all the five-star ratings on funds, and then you can break it down to the different categories you're interested in, whether you want growth or income or international or U.S. or small cap, large cap. You can do that all within these mutual fund screeners. But really, like I had just previously mentioned, for most people, one of the best choices is to simply use an index fund that's based on the S&P 500. And because the S&P 500 is comprised of a lot of multinational corporations, you're also going to get broad exposure to the global market as well. So if you're just starting out, if you're a newbie, S&P 500 index fund is really where you want to start. Now, if you want to get into more sophisticated investing, that takes us to Chris's question from MeWe, and Chris asks about a book recommendation for analyzing stocks. Well, Chris, there's literally thousands of them out there. If you go to Wiley.com and look under their book categories for finance and investing, you'll literally see over 3,200 books that are written by experts in all the industries, and they start out from everything from you know investing for dummies all the way up to extremely complex options trading strategies. If I had to recommend one introductory book for you for stock market analysis, I'd have you read William O'Neill's How to Make Money in Stocks. That's an excellent book. He's also the publisher of Investor's Business Daily. It's not the end-all and be-all, but it's a very good place to start. And then finally, the last question that came in from MeWe was from P.A. Prepper. And hey, shout out to P.A. Prepper. He does a great job over on the Zillow channel. Well, PA is asking, is there a good and simple way to invest in small businesses? Well, PA Prepper, the short answer to that is no. But having said that, there are also a lot of opportunities in small business, but it's very complex. There's a lot of dangers that go along with it because you're talking, in most cases, about unsecured debt. Not something I can really cover in this segment. But hey, if you ever want me to come on the Zillow channel and have an in-depth discussion on the topic, well, hey, I'd be happy to do that. Well, hey, guys. Thanks for all the questions. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. So I agree with everything John said. I just I have to uh, address two things real quick here before I go on to my segments for today. Uh, number one, what John was saying about moving to the cash equivalent inside your 401k. I'm very happy to hear that more and more people are getting the options of basically self-directed 401ks where they basically can act as their own broker and they can have any any approved investment that's allowed in a 401k they want that way. That's great. A lot of people still don't. And a stable value fund is great if you have one. 
And I had to get corrected by this audience because for years being in the employment sector and specifically being, you know, uh, VP managerial level type positions where I had input on the company's benefits package and having in that time never ever seen a 401k plan without something like a cash value fund in it. I thought it was required because I figured if it wasn't required, I would have, I would have seen one because I'm not just talking about the companies that I was with. I'm talking about like we have a company, we decide we need to get a new benefits provider and we might have 10 different pitches from 401k providers in that assessment and all 10 of them would have a stable value fund, a cash value fund, a dollar fund, whatever. Um, so I thought it was required. Apparently it wasn't, and apparently a real effort was made about a few years after I started the show, so like eight years ago, to get rid of those. And a lot of funds, a lot of the 401k plans no longer have a stable value, cash value thing like that. They've removed that option. And a lot of people that are in this situation, but they still have one, they got kind of grandfathered with it. Since they already had money in it, if they took it away, it didn't go away for those people. So sometimes even people that think there is one, there is one for you because you're an old-timer at the company, but there isn't one anymore. And usually the best thing you can do in a, in a 401k that's like that is move your money to a bond fund. And generally, I never want to use absolutes with anything anymore. In general... Plans that don't have a stable value fund have a U.S. government bond fund where basically you're buying dollar-backed funds, uh, U.S. Treasury bonds. And they generally have a very stable type plan where the plan itself is not trading lots of bonds. They're, they're, they're holding long. So it's, it's, it's a lot like buying the bonds yourself. And you can lose money in bond funds, but... Um, the type of bond funds that generally are in these plans are fairly stable and a lot less risky, and they're the type of fund that you would move to if you saw a major recession coming. And even if you lost a little bit, you're going to lose a lot less that way. But you don't always have that option in a 401k, which is why, unless your employer does a match, don't even do a 401k. Set up an IRA where you have control. Uh, next up, um, toward the end, PA Prepper asked about investing in small business. This is what you have to understand if you're going to do that. You're not investing in a business. You're investing in a person. Because if the business is big enough that it's a business beyond the person, you don't qualify as an investor. Okay? I'm just being honest with you. When you talk about being an off-the-street guy has a couple hundred thousand put away, maybe they're willing to put 50 grand in as some kind of risk thing, um, as a, as a, 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 a silent uh, or passive partner in a small business. That business is a business that is going to fail or succeed on the back of one individual. Even if there's like, well, there's two partners or there's three people, there is one individual that is driving that business. And you're putting your, your, your betting, that's the horse that you've gone to the track and you've bet on. And that does not mean it's bad. And it doesn't equivalent, make it equivalent to the track. Because if you have enough people to pick from, your odds of winning with that investment are a lot higher than winning at the track. But it is what you're doing. You're picking a horse. 
And there are things that might make you more likely to pick a horse, like a consistent track record of success and a trend of growth in the business, um, that, there, where you are getting closer to investing in the actual business. But I guarantee you, any place where you have the opportunity to step in as an investor, if you have to ask this question and you have an opportunity to step in as an investor, there is a human being who which will either make your investment worthwhile or will ruin it. Or you wouldn't be in the position to be an investor in the first place. And be very careful, because usually when people ask for money in this type of situation, it's because they're either yet unproven or they're in trouble. So you have to be really careful, because if I have a successful business and I'm going to take on an investor, I need to know what they're bringing to the table other than money, because if it's just money and I think that I can give them an ROI in a reasonable time period, well, I would just go to the bank and get debt. Seriously. When someone's looking for a passive partner in the form of an investor, they need money and no one else will give it to them. Just always be aware that that's a potential possibility. All right, with that, let's talk about some other things to do with money. So today I noticed that uh, Congressman Tlaib, uh, I saw this on Facebook, she said that she cannot allow people to just work for tips. Now, my first response to that, Congressman Tlaib, is go screw. You don't allow shit. That's not what being a congressman is about. We don't, we don't look to you and say, will you allow us, all right? But what she was actually saying is that the minimum wage, like the whole fight for 15 that Bernie Sanders is on and now everybody's on on the Democrat, it's not enough. It should be at least 20, and it should apply to service workers. And generally speaking, when you hear the progressive wing of the Democrats talk about raising minimum wage, they invoke the service worker who works for tips, and they always say they want to bring them along for the ride that nobody should have to survive on tips. Well, here's the thing. If you're a service worker and you work for tips and your employer can afford to pay you $20 an hour without going out of business as a server, then you should be able to make more than that. That's reality. If, they, if you can't make more than $20 an hour as a waiter or a bartender, the place you're working at can't afford to pay it to you either, or you suck. You're not good enough. It's one or the other. Okay? It could even be both. But, it, but if, 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 if the place can afford it and you're good, you already make more than $20 an hour. My son worked as a bartender for years at an on-the-border in, in South Arlington that was okay, but it's pretty mediocre for this area. And he always did better than about 25 bucks an hour. You know, maybe not every day, but when you averaged out a week, he made more than $25 an hour. So... The, the average person who's any good at their job already makes more than they want them paid. Now hold on, because it gets even because it's a meritocracy. I know a guy who's a a bartender in the Dallas Fort Worth area. He works for a place called Three Forks. It's a very high end steakhouse. He makes about two hundred thousand dollars a year as a bartender. You got that? About two. So now, can you just go in and get his job? No. No, it took him a long time to get that position of running the bar and picking his own hours and the cherry-picking the, 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 the best nights to be there and becoming good enough and sociable enough that he is tipped that highly. But that's what's possible in the industry. Now, I bet you he doesn't pay taxes on all that money. And I can tell you for a fact, the, the, the kid that's working 30 hours a week that's averaging 25 to 35 bucks an hour in the service industry is paying taxes like they make about minimum wage. 
And that's why these ass clowns want them paid on the books, on the payroll. It has nothing to do with worrying about their needs and looking after for them. It's their damn greed. They want that money because Upgrade going to get his money. They want that money on the payroll books, so it's Social Security, so it's income tax, FICA, FUTA, everything. They see it as their money. Because if you think about it, if you force the restaurant to pay the, the, the worker 20 bucks an hour, okay, then, the, then they're going to have to raise their prices, and people are going to know they make $20 an hour, and they're not going to tip. So tips are gone. You get rid of tips. So the person that went there is now just paying the money to the restaurant instead of paying it to the server. We put an intermediary in that runs the numbers across the books because whether you know this or not, Your server doesn't pay tax on all their tips. Everybody that pays attention knows this. So they want their money. By the way, when you run the numbers, you take the average person making about $25 an hour take-home money, paying almost no taxes on it, you move them down to $20, and they're a 30-hour-a-week person, part-time like many of them are, you just took $15,000 out of their pocket, thank you. You've given them a raise from two twenty-five or whatever it is an hour to twenty bucks, but you've taken fifteen thousand dollars a year from them. About five thousand went off into the netherworld and lost due to inefficiencies, and ten thousand went to the government. Yay, that's what's going on there. So there was that. Uh, then I had a question. I thought that was short enough. That little segment there that um, we could, you know, handle this one for Chris who sent this in. Because the answer is, you don't have, there's no one thing that does this, what you're asking for. He says, hey, Jack, if you want a bird to purchase young in the spring, increase fertility on your property, provide eggs, and then slaughter annually in the fall for a meat yield, what would you recommend? This is more a hypothetical as I do more future lifestyle design than for right now kind of thing. Currently, we're working away building a, uh, a pension and on pretty tiny suburban lot. This enables a lot of learning and practicing what I can do to increase my self-reliance and self-sufficiency before moving to a larger property when I have more time to dedicate to it. I intend to winter myself and my family away from Canada where we live, which is the reason for the question, like a March to October lifespan. Uh, love the work you do, particularly uh, the Just Jack shows and odd interviews topic dependent across from Canada. That, that, it's a unicorn bird because that doesn't exist. Let's, let's just talk about it if we was going to use the, the bird everybody uses, the chicken, and I'm just going to say or the duck, right? Because both of those animals are about the same in what we call an egg debt into that first season. They will take 22 to 24 weeks to lay their first egg, okay? So it's going to take 22 to 24 weeks. Now, both of these animals can be used to improve pasture, and with the right breed selection, both of them can be a reasonable meat yield. We can, we can get that from either one of them. So you said in your email, let me check to make sure I have this right, you said uh, March to October. So <laughs> if, you, if you got these birds on March the 1st, as early as possible in March, your best guess at when they're going to pop out the first eggs is going to be August the 16th. Okay? So now we've got August the 16th until, let's say, November the 1st to get eggs from them. We'll get eggs for about 10 weeks. Um, 
But we're also going to go through this period. Whenever you take a, a laying bird and you you raise it from a baby, they have a ramp up. And your first couple weeks is really sporadic. You get smaller eggs. They're basically developing the biological ability to pass a giant lump out of their butt. Uh, and so it, it takes some time. So maybe we get eight weeks of real production. And then after all of that, after we fed these animals, because you cannot do this on pasture alone, uh, so we've, we've incurred a very large feed debt that that bird can never pay us back. When we then harvest that animal for meat, since we wanted something that was an egg and meat production animal, we get a pretty poor meat yield. Uh, about the best we could do is something like a Delaware chicken, uh, maybe a larger breed of duck like Silver Apple Yard, which is going to be expensive ducklings. And then you got this big load of meat that you got to get back to your property. And I just don't know that this makes sense. So the, the better question might be, what can I do to improve pasture and produce meat? And what can I do to provide my family with eggs during that time? And I would say that probably the best animal for what you're looking to do here would be turkeys. Um, because you have plenty of time to finish turkeys out to full size during this period. And if you look at something like my favorite turkey is the broad-breasted bronze. Uh, in a six-month window... And I would, if you're trying to do pasture improvement with this, you're going to want to tractor them or electro net or something like that. And so you're going to confine birds together. I'm going to go 100% hens. I'm not going to do any toms in that situation. I've had toms kill each other and kill hens in this breed. It, it happens, and I, I understand that it happens in other breeds as well. So I am not going to put toms together in a specifically confined space where when someone's being picked on, they can't get away. So I'm going to go all hens, and I'm going to get an average bird uh, somewhere between 24 and 28 pounds carcass weight. So if I, if, I, if I have 10 birds, just 10 birds, I'm going to produce somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 to 280 pounds of meat with just 10 birds. It takes a lot of chicken. To do that. And if you want more meat than that, just add more pulse. They're going to do a great job on the pasture improvement, etc. If you want an additional meat yield and you want more scratching and stuff, then I would run a short duration run of chickens and I would run the chickens behind the turkeys and I would just do Cornish Cross and however many of those that you wanted to do. And I would do a pasture type rotation, using electronet tractors, what have you, depending on where you are, what's appropriate, the numbers, the size, all that stuff we don't know yet. What's the weather like? What's the pasture like? What's the capacity? How big is it? Is the meat just for you? Do you have a cottage industry that you can tap into and pay for it uh, by selling these animals off, which you probably can with turkeys? Um, that's where I would go. The other animal that will give you a rapid return but would be difficult to do because of the cost of the babies without having your own stock producing your own babies every year is geese. Geese will go to market slaughter size in 11 weeks, and they'll do it almost 100% on grass if you've got good grass. 
That is incredibly fast. They can be herded like, like flipping goats, except they're more agreeable than a goat, and they don't climb trees like goats, and they don't get on the top of your car like goats. Um, with the right um, gosling, with, with the right gander goose combinations and what have you, basically they can be raised by their parents. And I mean, there's a lot we can do there. So that brings us to eggs. So in this kind of nomad lifestyle you're talking about, the thing that probably fits the best for you is quail, and probably in a stacked system, um, just the way everybody else raises Courtney's quail, because you can have your first eggs in seven weeks if you start with you know, absolute babies. If you started by getting eggs from somebody and incubate them, you have your first eggs in nine, ten weeks. So, and then you've got another meat yield that really doesn't help your pasture. The other option, and this would be very dependent on where you're going. If the area that you've decided to do this in has enough to sustain people as egg producers, people that raise chickens, for eggs, and they're serious about what they do, they're going to be keeping chickens one to two seasons. That's it. And if you can tie into somebody like that that's getting rid of 18-month-old or 30-month-old or uh, pullets or full-grown adult chickens at that point, but they're bringing in, you know, at a six-month lag time, they're bringing in their new pullets, they're raising them up, and they're getting rid of their birds. They're probably not getting much money for them. They're probably self-slaughtering or something like that. Again, it's just not a super high-quality meat yield. Many times, if you can find somebody that is their core business, that is what they do, and they, they religiously rotate, they'll sell you those birds for next to nothing. Because it's more important to them to get them the hell out of there and stop feeding them. But then you've got mature birds that will lay just nowhere near as much and, but they're going to do everything you need a chicken to do on pasture. You're just going to have to put them in some sort of confinement. The only concern is sometimes chickens that were free-ranged do not adapt well at that age to going into some sort of pasture management program where they're, they're confined. It, it, it usually works better with electronet and a fairly large area. If you try to tractor them, sometimes those types of birds... You put them in there, they've never been treated that way before, they will just sit there and not do anything. So, you know, you you got to kind of think about how you're going to manage that. But those, those are the ways that I would come at this. There is no bird that makes economic sense to purchase as a baby, race for a single season, expect an egg yield from, and get a meat yield. Because, again, we're talking 24 to 26 weeks till we get egg number one. And it's going to take that bird based on a market value of an egg, in general, almost a year to pay itself back to you on the cost of feed, labor, everything else. If you're selling that egg as a premium product, you can get an ROI in more like six months. But when we were running ducks and we were selling eggs for $8 a dozen, uh, we had a very good system down, not counting the additional labor when I hired Cody, like an idiot I was for hiring such a dumb kid, um, not counting him, just my wife's time and everything we did. Um, it took us about six months for a baby duck, I should say a year, because it took about six months for it to lay an egg. And from that point forward, it took another six months for that bird had paid it back its debt, including the additional feed bill that it continued to incur going forward. And from that point forward, that bird was profitable. 
Now, it wasn't 100% profitable, but in the end, when we averaged everything out, we made it between $3 and $4 a dozen, selling at 8 So you see what I'm saying. If you only have that limited window of about two, two to two and a half months of egg laying and only about six to seven weeks of really productive egg laying, that, that, that is a losing proposition, and you'd be better off raising an animal that's an outstanding meat yield in the first place, like a broad-breasted bronze turkey or a meat chicken or a meat, ju a meat duck like a jumbo pecan or a goose. Uh, geese race for, you know, again, 11 weeks. And this is something you have to understand. When you slaughter an animal for meat, and we're talking pastured poultry, you don't want that animal old enough to lay eggs at slaughter time. The quality of the meat is best, depending on what we're talking about, somewhere between with quail, six weeks is optimum. And with things like chickens, we're somewhere between 8 and 12. And with geese, ducks, we're more like 11 to 18. Everything after that, you're getting a tougher, leaner, less appealing product. About the only thing that can go long-term and just keep getting better is turkeys. Because you can grow them things to where you have to slaughter them because they can't even walk anymore. All right, that wraps things up. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did and you want to support us, remember, the best way to do that, honestly, is become a member of the MSB or Member Support Brigade. All you got to do that is go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members. Use the benefits, and your membership will pay for itself. If you think this show's worth 20 cents an episode, consider joining because that's what it comes out to. Uh, the other way, and this is the absolute painless way because you're spending money you're probably going to spend anyway, is to do your online shopping and start out at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. When you go to tspaz.com, you can see all the stuff that I've reviewed on Amazon. Everything there, I own it, I use it, I spent my money on it, and if I need to, I'll spend my money on it again, or it doesn't get on tspaz. But it doesn't matter what you buy, as long as you start there, you help support us. The product of the day I have for you today is the Victor Tire Plug Repair Kit. Now, I said during Derek's uh, segment that, you know, you need to know how to use certain things that are no, no benefit to you, and this is one of those. But the good news is you can learn how to use a plug kit on a tire in about 15 minutes, tops, watching YouTube videos. And if you're a smart person, uh, you can probably watch 30-second video of somebody doing it without even explaining it and know how to do it yourself. It's that easy. Um, there's a lot of misinformation about plugs. Somebody on, on, on Facebook today said they're illegal in Canada except for farm trackers. I'm like, well, Canada's effing stupid then because there's just nothing. You have a flat tire, you put a plug in it, the worst thing that's going to happen is it's going to go flat again, which it already is, uh, and it probably won't. I have personally plugged a tire that had a screwdriver in it. Not a screw, a screwdriver. Like a number two Phillips full-size screwdriver had gone into the tire and the handle was 90% in. Like my uncle and I looked at it, And we couldn't even figure out what it was. We saw this gray lump. And I got onto it with a pair of vice, or not vice grips, channel locks and pulled it out. And we're like, huh, I don't know if a plug, yeah, you're talking like a half inch diameter, but the rubber stretches. We're, we're kind of stuck. And it was this Jeep. And we're like, well, you know, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And then we'll go ahead and put the flat on. So we popped that in and we aired it up with a compressor and uh, drove down the road and no problems uh, I do know a little bit more about tires than your average person my father made his money as a, a tire shop owner 
And he ran a tire store in Jacksonville, Florida from the 1970s to the 1980s. And, I mean, I was 11 years old, and I was running tire machines, breaking tires down, doing patches, doing plugs, doing balance work, stuff like that. Uh, my dad was a big believer in, you know, go to work and learn how to work. Uh, in his opinion, it was so that I would learn how to do things that weren't as hard. Uh, and then I turned around and became a mechanic in the Army where I got to work on bigger tires. And uh, So when I tell you that a plug kit for $8 will fix 9 out of 10 problems you'll have on the road and get you going again, and it is safe, you can believe it, okay? Whatever FUD, and I'm going to tell you this too. If you go to tire shops, sometimes they'll say, well, you plug it, we can't pass you now. Then leave and just leave the plug in the tire, it's fine. The people that work at tire ships, shops at this point in history are liars that do not know, do not know they are lying liars. They have been taught so many generations of these people to lie, that they don't believe it's a lie anymore. They actually think they're telling you the truth. So it's not a malicious lie, but it's a lie. Um, it is always safe if you have the damage to the tire not in the sidewall, and we're talking something like a screw, a nail, whatever, to patch it. It's always safe. Putting a plug in that hole doesn't change that. And the plug will generally last as long as the tire. Um, again, done this my whole life, folks, and with this... And a good compressor like the Vi Air compressor, which is linked in the write-up today, nine times out of ten, you can get off the road. And this is why this is a true survival topic, not just a preparedness topic. If you have a flat tire on the side of the road, the biggest danger you have is that while you're changing your tire, someone is going to run into you or your vehicle and knock it onto you. If you can avoid removing that tire and jacking up that vehicle, and get down the road as swiftly as possible, and get off the road to take any further action you need to, you're, you are much better off. And here's the reality. In most situations, you don't even need to plug the tire to get off the road. You air the tire up enough, and then you get off the road. You get down the road, off an exit, whatever, somewhere to a parking lot that's safe, flat, and level, and then you make a determination about where to go next. And if you find a screw or a nail, it's as fast as pull it out, put the plug in, trim the plug off, air up the tire, and go on with your life. And anybody tells you that's not true doesn't know that they're lying, or they know that they're lying. Picks one or the two. Sorry. Again, done it my whole life. All right. So with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Remember, this week we are engaged in Number Song Week. These are all songs with numbers for titles or at least numbers in the titles. And John Adam gave me like seven and said, pick five, and I had to break out today and pick my own song. I decided I wanted my own number song. And I cheated a little bit because there's a number in the title, but it's not just a number. The song is by Brian Adams, and it's, of course, Summer of 69. There's a couple reasons I picked it. One, I was already leaning toward it. Then yesterday when I was researching the song 1985 by Bowling for Soup, and Summer of 69 came up, they did a cover of it. I thought, well, it's the stars are aligned now. i got to do this. But I'll tell you why I want to do this song. Number one, it's just one of the all-time great rock songs. It just is. Um, it's just one of those songs that makes you feel good. And it's Friday, and a lot of you are driving home from work, and I want to give you some real rock to listen to when you're driving home from work on a weekend. So why not? Number two, we all have this story. We all have this story. And yesterday we talked about the story in the bad way, 1985. 
there was the housewife who's still living in 1985 and doesn't really know how blessed she is to be in 2019, right? We all have, unless you're still in this, these years, right? If you're still like 19, 20, okay, well, you'll understand one day, right? But if you're 40 or 50 years old, you have this time in your life. And there's probably, even if you're like, my childhood in some ways sucked, okay? But there's still some really great shit in it, man. Me and my buddies hanging out and racing cars and stuff like that and all the stuff that goes on with that, bush parties and drinking beer and running from the cops and just... And that's even in the video. This video has a scene where him and his buddies are running from the cops and doing it in a way that's kind of harmless, right? And the cops all trip over a bunch of apples because I guess there's a few bad ones in the bunch. Hey, I didn't see that coming. That was awesome. Anyway, like so we all have this. And this song is more about looking back, reflecting on it, seeing it for how awesome it was, but not living there. The times are changing. Look at all that's come and gone. And while he still has this girl in his mind that he remembers, there's nothing about this song that says that I wish I was still back there. It's just I think back and I enjoy this memory. By the way, in 1969, Brian Adams was nine years old. So it just worked better to be the summer of 69 than I guess maybe the summer of 79, especially since the song was released in the 80s, right? The other thing is, the, one of the co-writers of a guy wrote, wrote it with Brian said that maybe the number isn't really the year. Maybe it has something to do with uh, another connotation of the number 69. You want to know, look it up on Song Facts. Anyway, with that, great rock song, great memory song. Let's go ahead and give it a listen here on the end of a week. Remember, this is your time, guys, no matter how old or young you are. This is your time. You're burning that dash. And when we take songs like this that are nostalgic and we look back, all that stuff back there is great. It brought us to where we are. But as you go into this weekend and you think about your preparedness, your self-sufficiency, your self-reliance, and your journey in life and getting what you want, you have from this point forward. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. I got my first real six-string, blowing out the five and done, played it till my fingers
Who's that? Nobody. I said, who's that? I said, nobody. 